Good, if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30. We're continuing with our hidden series, hidden heroes series. 1 Samuel chapter 30. A little bit of a backstory. Uh, people of Israel asked for a king, so God anointed a man called Saul to be king. He's a very tall man. He was head and shoulders above every man in Israel. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do the work of leading Israel as a king. And remember in those days, it was so important to be a king of Israel because you were actually a representative on earth of the king who was in heaven, God himself. But Saul unfortunately blew it. Um, He didn't treasure God as much as he treasured other things, his own reputation. And... uh, God decided to anoint a second, another king, and this was a young man called David. He was only a teenager. God anointed him, and David had to wait until Saul died before he became king. So he waited probably almost 20 years to become king. And in that time, he served Israel faithfully as a general in the army. He defeated thousands and thousands. They they would sing songs. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. But Saul hounded David because he felt threatened by him. Eventually, David went to go and live with the Philistines. And there was an occasion when the Philistines were at war with Israel. And so David decided to join the Philistine army with his men. He had 600 men. And on the way to, to marching towards Israel, the Philistine commanders looked around and they said, what are these Hebrews doing here? What are these Israelites doing here? They'll turn on us in the middle of the battle and uh, start killing us, send them home. And so David had been away from home for three days and uh, we enter the story now uh, at chapter 30. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. So they had been marching for three days effectively. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag, which was where David lived. They had attacked Ziklag and burnt it and had taken captive the woman and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in his spirit because of his sons and daughters that had been carried off as slaves. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Valley, where some of them stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley. But David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. And he ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, who do you belong to and where do you come from? 
He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kerithites, some territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master and I will take you down to them. He led David down and there they were scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. These guys were opportunists. They knew that the Philistines and the Israelites were fighting each other. So they slipped in and plundered. David fought them. Listen to this from dusk until the evening of the next day. And none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. And David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock saying, This is David's plunder. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Besor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers amongst David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder that we've recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children. Wasn't that generous? David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute and an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. This is the word of the Lord. Our son Matthew flew in from Joburg last Friday and his plane was due to land at quarter past six in the evening. So we left at five o'clock in the evening, gave ourselves lots of time to get to the airport and we left in good spirits, Gail, Catherine, and myself. In fact, we were joking about the traffic. We, we said that Harare traffic, we're driving in it was like, like being whitewater rafting. And, um, and then of course, Catherine quipped and she said, oh, well, that's fine, because at least in whitewater rafting, you keep moving. And then Gail said, well, what about the first rapids? Uh, and of course, we were approaching the intersection of Second Street and Churchill, and we got through the first rapids, and then we continued down Churchill, and Gail said, what about the Borodale Rapid? And we got through the Borodale Rapid, <laughs> and we just, we were trucking. We got through, what's the next one, Glenara Rapid, we got through the Samora Michelle Rapids, we got through the Matari Road Rapids, and we were just bombing along Glenara, and we came to Kaborabasa, <laughs> a traffic dam. Not a traffic jam, a traffic dam. And Glenara Avenue was dammed up as only a Harare road can be dammed up. You know all of those extra lanes that don't exist? Those were all dammed up. 
<laughs> Do you know that little reserve on the inside of the yellow, yellow line? That was dammed up. Even the cycle paths were dammed up with tra traffic. And uh, I can assure you that we were no longer whitewater rafting. We were becalmed in a traffic jam. But I can also assure you that we were anything but calm. Now, thousands of years ago, the armies of Israel also ended up in a traffic jam, and they ended up in a traffic jam for 40 days. They were camped on this hill, facing the armies of Philistine across the valley of Elah. And every day, for 40 days, the two armies formed up their ranks, and they faced one another, one on either side of the brook that flowed through the valley. And every day, twice a day, morning and evening, for 40 days, the Philistine champion Goliath strode out and he challenged the armies of Israel to send their champion to engage him in arm-to-arm -arm combat. But King Saul, anointed by God, as I said, he stood head and shoulders over every man in Israel. King Saul, who was God's designated champion, God's representative on earth, the leader of the armies of Israel, was too afraid to go out and engage Goliath in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so he infected every member of his army with fear. Every day, twice a day, Goliath strutted backwards and forwards, and he insulted the armies of Israel. And even worse, he insulted God, because the armies of Israel were the armies of God at that time. And it's at that point that God's hero enters, David, the son of Jesse. But maybe someone's saying, well, Ian, I thought we were talking about hidden heroes. Everybody knows about David and Goliath. There's nothing hidden about David. Listen to this. It's easy to assume that a hero is formed by one defining act. So we see heroes as God's men of power for the hour and in a blaze of glory they just flame up and they change the course of history forever. But we need to get this. Behind every visibly heroic moment is a hidden hero. There's a hero in the making. Heroes are not created in an instant. They are formed in the crucible of everyday life. You must be a hero in your mundane life, your workaday life, if you want to be a hero at all. So let's return to the Valley of David, the Valley of Elah. David just cannot believe his eyes and his ears. And he asks the question, he starts asking the guys in the army, he says, who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? We see that in 1 Samuel 17, 26. I'm just going to read very briefly from 1 Samuel 17, 31 to 37. You don't need to turn there. What David said was overheard. It became common knowledge amongst the army that he was asking this question. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And it was reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. The man of power for the hour. 
Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior since his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep every day, workaday, mundane life, looking after sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord will be with you. Can you see from that that David had learned to become a hero in his everyday life as a shepherd? A hero is formed and crafted on the anvil of everyday life. Holiness is shaped by the blows of everyday trials. If it's only one or two heroic acts that define our contribution to God and what we do for him, then the rest of our ordinary lives just become meaningless. But what if there is meaning in a traffic jam? What if I can become a hidden hero in the traffic jams of life? What happens if I am a hero in the making as I wait in the traffic, drumming my fingers on the, on the steering wheel? This is what the Apostle James writes. He says, consider it pure joy. Now that word consider, we know from what the scholars have told us, is an accounting term. It's what you do when you come to a set of books and you look at all the credits and you look at all the debits and you look at the assets and the liabilities and you end up with the bottom line. Consider it. What is the bottom line here? Pure joy. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And now you ask the question, well, why on earth would that be the case? So he answers. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith, that is what a trial does, it tests your faith. It's like an apocalypse. Do you know what an apocalypse is? Apocalypse is literally an unveiling. It is an unveiling of what is on the inside. The testing of your faith, the apocalypse of your faith. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. This is why we count it pure joy. This is why we get to the bottom line that it is pure joy. It's because the testing of our faith develops perseverance. And then he goes on to say, perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James 1, verses 2 through 4. I know it's hard to hear this, but God has designed your ordinary life in order to complete you. Traffic jams of life are designed so that perseverance can work on you. Perseverance is like a coach. A coach works on a team so that the team will stand up to the challenges of the match. Perseverance works on you 
so that your faith will stand up to the challenges of life. It is God who trains our hands for battle. That's what David says in one of his Psalms. It's God who trains my hands for battle. Why? Because at the moment, and we all need to hear this, myself included, we are immature and incomplete. We lack things of great value. Don't you want things of great value in your life? Those things will be granted to you through your trial. The Apostle Paul wrote, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Did you know that all things includes trying to wash and iron the kids' school uniform when there's no power and there's no water? All things includes all things. Why does God work in that for your good? Well, it's because he's called you for a purpose. If you look at the next verse, it says, those God foreknew, he predestined. And those he predestined, he called... What did he call them for? To be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's why God is working in all things for your good, because he wants you to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. He is using the vicissitudes of daily life to form you into the likeness of his son, Jesus. I heard that word vicissitude used the last week, and I thought, let me go and have a look, see what it means. And here's what it means. It is so apt for our Zimbabwean situation. It means a change of circumstances or fortune, typically one that is unwelcome or unpleasant. (laughs) There, you've learned a fantastic new word, vicissitudes. And isn't that exactly what happens to us? We're bombing along Glenara Avenue and then we hit a vicissitude. Change of circumstances, a change of fortune, It's unwelcome, it's unpleasant, it's a traffic jam, it's a power cut, it's a petrol queue, it's getting to the tank and finding that they've just run out. These vicissitudes, now we need to hear this, these vicissitudes can become holy moments. Do you know what a holy moment is? A holy moment is a moment that has been set apart for God to do what he wants to do. That's what makes it holy. So these vicissitudes can become holy moments, moments that are set apart for God to work on you, for perseverance to do its training on you. These moments can be holy because they can be set apart as moments of worship, as pathways to worship, if you like, as you seek to honor God right when it's the last thing that you want to do. These are moments when you can be formed as a hidden hero. You're not doing it in front of a big audience. It's not like you're stepping out as David did in front of the entire armies of Israel to take on a three meter high giant. No, he was formed to be that hero in all the hidden moments when nobody else was there. When when he had to go and chase the lions away that were coming to eat his sheep. Holy moments. But someone says, well, maybe, maybe, Ian, you need to give us some helpful practical steps to, to hero formation, especially in traffic jams. Well, fortunately, the Bible gives us an insight into how David dealt with vicissitudes. And though the events that we read about earlier 
the, the affair of Ziklag, um, although they are momentous events, they show us, they reveal to us how David dealt with vicissitudes, whether big or small. They show us his instinctive reaction, which he had been trained to have through all of those other smaller incidents in his life. So this trial was by no means the greatest trial, but it was significant. Because of in this account, we catch a glimpse of how David had been formed as a hero through the experiences of everyday life. His response to this crisis was instinctual because he had been trained as a hidden hero. And David had learned to do four things. We'll go through them. First thing that he did, he processed his emotions. Just have a look there in verse four. When David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. When you're faced with a vicissitude, a traffic jam, you must become aware of and identify your emotions. Emotions can either be useful to you, they're designed to be useful to you, or they can become a hindrance. In fact, they can become something that kibosh you entirely. Emotions are useful because they tell you something about what is going on in your mind and particularly in your subconscious and amongst your beliefs. So when you face one of these trials in life, an apocalypse happens, an unveiling of what goes on inside. And the start of that unveiling is the emotions that you feel. And you need to use those emotions to dig down to find out what it is that you believe and what are the goals that you've set for yourself? So in the traffic jam, I started by feeling anxious. What does anxiety tell me? Anxiety tells me that I've set a goal which has now become uncertain. I'm uncertain whether I'm gonna achieve the goal. What was my goal on that occasion? It was to arrive at the airport in time to meet Matthew. That was the goal. So now we hit the traffic jam, Mm, I'm not sure if we're gonna make it. And then as time goes on, I start to feel frustrated and even angry. And that's because my goal has become blocked. But you know, so often we, we're not aware of our emotions and our emotions overtake us and they control us before we know what's happening. And that's not a good thing. So a blocked goal means it will normally result in, in anger and frustration. And then as time went on and it became clear that we probably weren't gonna make it, I, I began to experience something that was pretty close to despair. Despair and depression and hopelessness is when we've set a goal that has now just become completely unreachable. I want a safe and comfortable life in Zimbabwe. Gonna be depressed if you set that goal. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you that for free. That's jolly useful. David was feeling the same emotions as his men. However, and this is of great significance, notice the but at the start of the last sentence in verse 6. Can you see it there? It said, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in his spirit because of his sons and daughters. But... David found strength in the Lord, his God. 
So can you see that what the, the, the writer is doing there is he is contrasting the response of the men and the response of David. They both responded differently. The men gave in to their anger and they wanted to stone David. They started apportioning blame in all the wrong places. And that's exactly what I wanted to do in the traffic. I wanted to start lashing out at the people I thought were contributing to this problem. And you can imagine who that was. <laughs> I just wish I had a Sherman tank or something. But what did David do? Let's move on to the next step. He became aware of his emotions. He processed them. And I would imagine that he was doing something like what I was talking about here. And then it says he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Do you see that? But David found strength in the Lord his God. That's what differentiated him from his men. Instead of giving in to his emotions, he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And that's what we need to be like as hidden heroes. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how David did this. And I think that we all need to learn different ways of how to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. You know that we're doing it here on a Sunday morning. But we need to find ways to do it when we are right there on the anvil being beaten by the blows of life. We need to figure out how we can strengthen ourselves. Let me give you some insights into my own experience. These are some of the things that I do. My instinctive response in that traffic jam was to command the traffic to separate like the Red Sea. <laughs> I mean, if I'd had a staff, I would have just gone, in the name of Jesus, you know. And isn't that what we do? Just in that instant, we're just getting God on board as a servant to fulfill our plans and desires. Just sort it out, God. You know, this is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. Separate in the name of Jesus. That's almost, that's almost akin to blasphemy, isn't it? So that's using the Lord's name in vain. But to be honest, you know, if I was to do that, it would be me getting God to serve my plans. And so instead, what, what we've got to do is we've just got to say, Father God, I need help. In whatever form it takes, that's what I do. Just say, Lord, I need help. I know I've got my plans. I'd love you to separate the traffic, but I need help irrespective. So please, and then I begin to dig. Remember I said that emotions help me to uncover my goals and my beliefs? And you know, you can't start doing this until you've settled your emotions down a little bit. Because when the adrenaline is pumping, you're not going to be doing these things. <laughs> but as you start to settle down, I set up this sort of conversation with the Lord in my mind. And I'll say, Lord, I'm feeling anxious and I'm feeling frustrated. And then he says, well, what's the goal that you've set? I said, well, I want to arrive on time to wave to Matthew as he queues up in immigration, you know, from that little balcony, so that I can wave to <laughs> I love embarrassing my son in that way. And so God says, well, okay, just a little question. How much control do you have over achieving that goal? Not much, very little, in fact. And then God says, so, so why is it so important for you to achieve that goal? What's the belief? What's the belief behind that goal? Well, Lord, it would be terrible if we were late for Matthew and he had to come out into that welcome area and not see his family there. And then God says, well, why would it be terrible? I mean, would it really be terrible? 
Do you think Matthew would believe that, that you had done it intentionally? No, probably not. But you know, at that point, it's amazing what we end up believing. It's amazing what an apocalypse can unveil. Because I've had occasions in the past when I've let my children down, and I've, I've genuinely um, realized that, that I believe I'm, I'm not a good dad, and that I haven't been a good dad. And that's not the truth. And when that little voice comes to me and says, oh, you're, you're failing as a dad, you're not a good dad, blah, blah, blah. Whose voice is that? It's not God's voice. God doesn't come and say things like that to us. And so this unveiling happens in the midst of what we're doing. It's, and it's in that furnace of everyday life that we truly encounter the truth. It's in those incidents that we encounter the author of truth, the truth himself, Jesus Christ. And you know, it occurred to me that our journey to the airport was a metaphor of the Christian life. This is where, when God was starting to work. We'd started the journey, but we hadn't reached the destination. We're stuck in a traffic jam. Did that, did that mean that we weren't gonna get to the airport? Not at all. It simply meant that the journey was gonna play out differently to the way I had expected, to the way I had planned, to the way I had hoped. It showed me that I was not in control of the way that I got to spend my time. Isn't that something that's happening all the time to us? And we need to hear, to understand this lesson. And God will not spare us trial in order to teach us this lesson. We do not have control over our time. We think that we are the captains of our destiny, but we aren't. And at the moment, I'm spending quite a lot of time with elderly people. And some of them would long to die, but God gets to decide. And if you want to cross the finish line, you better start learning now how to cope with his timing and to listen to his timing and to persevere with his timing. And this is what our circumstances are teaching us. If you don't have power, then you can't say, I can't say to myself, well, I will write my sermon up on the computer between three and four o'clock and then at about five o'clock, I'll print it. If I've got power, I think that I'm in charge of my time and that I can dictate and do those things. But when I don't have power, ah, not the case. Oh, well, I'll make another plan. I'll write in a notebook. <laughs> but you know what? Does that mean that I'm in control of my time? Every breath that I breathe is at the pleasure of God. It's a gift from Him. We think about these things. And it strengthens us in our time of need. We need to learn patience. We need to learn perseverance. We don't learn it when we're bombing down Bardell Road at 80 k's an hour. We learn it when we get to the traffic lights at Churchill. <laughs> That's when our faith is forged. The Apostle Peter wrote, Trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith. You see that bit? Proven genuineness. Our faith is proven as genuine when the unveiling happens in the trial. Trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Who's praise, glory, and honor? I think mostly God's. But doesn't the Bible say that he's gonna to say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant? I'm looking forward to that. That's receiving praise, glory, and honor from God. 
and we show him in such an amazing light as well. And there's a little parenthesis here that Peter puts in. He says, your faith, and then he puts in this in brackets, he says, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. If gold, which won't last forever, needs refining, how much more so does your faith, which will last forever? When we sang that song earlier, Refiner's Fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy. That purification doesn't happen while we're singing that song. <laughs> That's us in strengthening ourselves in the Lord for when we get out there into the traffic, when he really does start refining us. Do we really have a desire to be holy? We're all on this journey to heaven. Traffic jams, listen to this folks, traffic jams do not have the final say. God does. He is sovereign over traffic jams. We've started on our journey and the traffic jam is not the destination. The airport is the destination and God will make sure that we get there. What did Paul say in regard to this? He said, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Encourage yourself in the Lord. When you wake up fearful at three o'clock in the morning or when you feel totally overwhelmed because there are just so many small details that used to be easy to deal with, but now they aren't. Just stop and say to yourself, and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in me is faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. What's gonna happen on the day of Jesus Christ? Praise, glory, and honor to God. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now let me just say this. When we hit those roadblocks in life, it is counterintuitive to do what David did, to process your emotions, to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Let's be honest, mostly we behave like David's men, don't we? We skip these steps and we immediately start the third step, which is to inquire of the Lord. But if we do that, we will not be in a position to hear his voice because our emotions and our false beliefs and our own goals are gonna be clogging the lines of communication. That's why we need to go through the work of processing our emotions, strengthening ourselves in the Lord. David had learned how to do that, and so was we. If you want to be a hero in the making, you must train yourself daily to process your emotions and to strengthen yourself in the Lord. You may need to do that right in the middle of the trial, right in the traffic jam, or you may have to put life on hold. And let me tell you that everything inside of you will be saying it is impossible to look, put life on hold for the moment. I can't do it. But you must, even if it's for five minutes, just to take that time to process your emotions, to strengthen yourself in the Lord, to set the scene so that you can inquire of God. I realized on Wednesday morning that I had to do that. I was right in the middle of exercising with, with Barry. And um, I just said, Barry, look, I'm, I'm just going to go and walk around the field a few times. And it just, it took 15 minutes. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. It took a bit of work. It took a bit of time. But we've got to set the scene for that inquiring of God, for that peace. I've had people also come into my office. Um, and, and I can remember the one person, I just said, why don't you just take my phone, go and sit in the corner of the garden, 
garden and listen to some praise music on my phone. So they did. They went off and they listened to five or six praise songs and they came back and they said, you know, Ian, what a relief. Because they'd just been running, running, running and they hadn't had a chance to just stop and strengthen themselves in the Lord. Quieten themselves so that they could hear from God. And then the last step. So we process our emotions, we strengthen ourselves in the Lord. David inquired of the Lord and then the last thing that we do is we participate in the Lord's plan. The Lord has a plan to get you through the roadblock so that you make it to the airport. And I'm speaking metaphorically here. It's, he's gonna get you through life. And often isn't that the hidden fear behind all of it is, am I gonna make it? Am I gonna be able to provide for my family? Am I gonna be able to love my children the way that I want to? But you know what, the burden doesn't rest on your shoulders alone. We mustn't cross the line and try to be God by shouldering his responsibilities. And these 400 men, they just didn't get it. They returned, we read about it earlier, they took full credit for the victory. How do we know that they took full credit? Because they said, oh, these 200 guys who stayed behind, they don't get to share in the spoils. That was another apocalypse, wasn't it? An unveiling of their hearts. They thought that they had achieved that victory. But of course they hadn't. They had simply aligned themselves to God's work. Look at what... David said, he said, the Lord has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. You see, it was the Lord who gave it into their hands. And did David and his men have to do something with their hands? Yes, of course they did. They had just spent three days marching to the muster of the armies of Philistine, marching back to Ziklag, discovered what had happened, pursued. Now they had to fight for 24 hours solid through the night from sunset the one day to sunset the next day. But you know what David writes in his Psalms? It just occurred to me. Let me read this to you. Because this is true for you as well. It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. So God provided a way, God has a plan and then he strengthened David to do it. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. So God gave David's enemies into his hands and he had already been through the process of training David's hands for battle so that he was battle ready to do what he had to do to participate in God's plan. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield and your right hand sustains me. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them so that they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. Let's close with a question. Are you a hidden hero in the making? Are you prepared to be a hidden hero in the everyday events of your life? Will you allow yourself to be forged on the anvil of adversity 
becoming like Christ, the hidden hero of every story in history. You see who the real hero is here? It's God. God is the hero behind every story in the Bible. He's the hero behind your life. David couldn't go to the temple. He couldn't go to the tabernacle, which was where you got to be in God's presence at that time. Couldn't go there to inquire of God because he was, he was in exile. He needed the help of a priest with an ephod, which incidentally was a, an item of clothing from the temple. So, so David used it as a representative, in a sense, of the presence of God when he was inquiring. But we belong, the Bible tells us, to a royal priesthood. Each one of you is a royal priest. Each one of you is the temple of God. You've got the divine presence of God, the person of the Holy Spirit living within the walls of your life. And here's the thing, if David could process his emotions, if he could strengthen himself in the Lord, if he could inquire of the Lord and participate in the Lord's plan, well then how much more so can you? Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you that our ordinary lives, our daily events can form us as hidden heroes. And we do, we want to be hidden heroes. We want to be hidden heroes who are formed in the likeness of the ultimate hero, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the hero behind every story in the Bible. We want to be changed. And Father God, I I know that every person here finds themselves in a different place. We certainly all need to be encouraged and strengthened in you. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, please come as our advocate, our parakletos, the one who stands beside us, who is on our side. Holy Spirit, the one who, who argues our case so that we believe the truth who defeats our foes. Please come and assist every person here in whatever trial it is that they're facing. And be the the refiner's fire because our heart's desire is to be holy, sanctified, set apart for you and for your plans and purposes in the everyday activities of life. We know that every moment can count for you. It's not just the the momentous turning points. It's even when we are sitting in the traffic or trying to sort out diesel for a generator. Whatever it is, Father, we want every moment of our life to be set apart as holy for you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.